Welcome to our next episode of The Intrepid Hunter with Nathan Lissell. And in this episode, we are after moose in Norway. Welcome, Nathan. Tell me how you decided on Norway and why moose? So Norway first came on my radar primarily because of salmon fishing. Norway was always on my sort of bucket list to go to go and visit because I've heard one it's such a beautiful country which I now found out for myself but also because it had the the mighty Alta River um, which for people that don't salmon fish and up until I started salmon fishing I never knew about is the sort of the holy grail of salmon fishing so as a result Norway was always on my radar for for that reason it's a place where you have big salmon it's the place where dreams come true from a, from a fishing perspective. So from that and learning that getting to fish the altar was nigh and impossible, I started to have a look at ways and means of, of, of going to Norway and fishing the place, fishing places and, and, and discovering rivers there because there are so many amazing rivers in that country. So as a result, it was actually over dinner one day, I was up in the Highlands visiting a friend, a bit of a stalking and shooting trip. And he said he had a, he, he had some communication with an estate out there that had some amazing fishing. Immediately, I was sort of like a, a kid in a sweet shop going, yeah, okay, let's have a look at that. Let's, 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 let's just go for it. One thing led to another and nothing really happened. Again, going back and during lockdown, I was sat looking for things to do and a, a bit bored. And then the whole Norway thing sort of re-sparked again because I just got into my salmon fishing uh, in a much, much bigger way than I ever anticipated. And I remembered this place that I was told about where they had this, this huge estate and hunting, shooting, fishing as well there. So I got in touch with them initially on a, uh, sorry, on a fishing base, uh, basis. To, to go out there and fish and see what was available. And after a bit of communication, initially through Facebook, I spoke with the estate manager, Chris, and he messaged back and we started a bit of dialogue. And we booked a, we arranged a Zoom call just to sort of have a, a bit of face-to-face -face, face -face and have a bit of a conversation about what was available. And during this sort of hour, hour and a half long conversation with him, it transpired that actually the fishing was just one element of what the estate had to offer. And it's the largest privately owned estate in Norway. It's 75,000 hectares. And I think, or, or in acres, I think it works out about 175,000 acres. So it's a colossal estate. And over this course of this hour and a half, we realized that he does, he actually is mostly a hunter. So we started to discuss, you know, all of a sudden I'm starting to hear him say moose hunting and, you know, they, they refer to it as wing shooting over there, which is quite a sort of more universal uh, term, whereas in the UK we say sort of game shooting and uh, we don't really call it wing shooting. But then he starts to ex explain that he's got all these different um, species of uh, uh, birds that we can go and hunt and things like that. So all of a sudden this trip to Norway goes from fishing orientated to me going out there and exploring it from a, um, a hunting perspective we planned it for sort of four or five four or five months beforehand maybe even a little bit longer that I was going to go out um, and experience a moose hunt with him as a client 
And I, I did say to him, I said, look, I want the, I want to experience everything about what you do, how you would normally do it. You know, don't shield me from all the, the you know, the, the blood and guts and the nitty gritty of make it as real as possible. Skip forward this period now where um, I'm coming to fly. And, and bearing in mind, we're, this is tw- 2021 that we did this. Now, for those that have listened to the Kyrgyzstan one, Kyrgyzstan was the, my first trip abroad where I was actually traveling with a rifle, you know, and going through the whole experience. In 21, when I flew out to Norway to hunt with Chris, I was using an estate rifle, so it was a lot easier. But it was still the big sort of leap from going leaving the UK and going into Norway. It was, I actually remember it specifically because I booked it so that I was hunting on my 30th birthday because I was trying to decide what to do. Do I have a big party? Do I go out and get drunk? Or do, do that enough? And I wanted to do something totally, totally different. It was the first sort of year without of, of hunting without my dad type thing. So I wanted to do something really special. And um, moose hunting was the was was the, the first foray. In terms of kit, what did you take out with you? Because I mean, at that time of year, what's what's the climate like in Norway? At that time of year, I was expecting it to be really cold, wet. Everything is, you know, really you know really quite bleak but actually it wasn't that bad at all it was actually it was like a sort of mid-september late september in scotland up in the highlands so you do get a bit of rain and a bit of wind but it wasn't it wasn't baltic cold it was quite it was a very pleasant climate to actually hunt in i ended up having i had my smocks i had layers and 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 christopher was explaining to me because as i say this was the first hunt he explained the layering system to me really well and the importance of, even though it might not be freezing cold, the importance of layers, which I up until that point had never needed to understand before because I'd never, never hunted in this capacity. And we were going to be. He was explaining that we were going to be, we were going to be hunting slightly uniquely in the sense of it was going to be more of a mountain hunt, whereas hunting with baying dogs or other means of hunting for moose in Norway is more common, whereas mountain hunts are a little bit, a little bit sort of out, more out of the ordinary. So, a, so a layering system was really important, so that we could remove layers when we're um, when we're hiking, and we can put layers on when we're sitting and glassing. And that that became really clear, and and I understood that you know quite quite quickly, and I saw, and I actually felt the benefit of it doing it. So, so in terms of everything like the weather, it was I was advised really to pack like a sort of autumnal trip in Scotland. Wow and that's kind of completely I guess when when most people think of Norway you just think of northern lights and it being really cold but that's that's a really good insight into I guess talking to the people that are arranging the trip or the experience to get the key information from them before you go and in terms of kit such as scopes, binoculars, rifles, what did you take your own or did you rely on the estate when you got out there? In the first instance, as I said, the, f- the first trip that we did to, Nor- uh, to Norway, I, I did have some of my own kit. I had, I had my loophole binos and, uh, and a couple of other bits, but it was actually very much reliant on on the estate, the estate supported me hugely with it. I took little bits that I thought would help, 
And it's always nice to have your own binos rather than rely on somebody else. Estate rifles, I thought, were, you know, were slightly different because they're there for that purpose. But certain things, you just want to have your own. But it was plan, plan in advance, as, it, as with all these trips, particularly, as we said, with the, with the Kyrgyzstan one, to, to plan in advance and to discuss this, and particularly if you've never done it before. But that, that's why it was really good in this, this, as this first trip ever happened. First trip happened. It was really good to sort of go with an operation where they cater for that and where they offer that, even though it is an absolute raw, real experience. There's still a professional operation that still provide that service for people that want to do it to whatever to whatever level. So, what was the journey like leaving? Where did you fly from the UK? Where did you go into? How did you get there? I mean, was it epic or was it fairly easy to do? It was. It was really, really straightforward uh, for Norway. I mean, this time, the first instance, I didn't have the rifle, so I didn't have to sort of go and declare uh, that, that I was carrying guns, like I did, uh, you know, the, the time after. Um, it was really straightforward. I was really quite a bit quite worried because it was a time when people were allowed to be traveling again in or starting to the traveling was starting to pick up so queues were getting a little bit busy and the stress of traveling on your own with all your kit was always a bit sort of worrying and previously I'd heard some horror stories about kit getting lost and when you're only there I was only there and the plan was only to be there for sort of four or five days so then you panic to think, well, if you lose an item of luggage, you really need that with you. And losing something even for a short period almost renders it completely useless because the chance of it getting to you in time is, is pretty slim. So I flew from Manchester to um, Trondheim, which Trondheim's a really nice airport, very straightforward to get to from, from Manchester. I did go via Amsterdam and I flew with KLM and obviously because of where they're based they 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 rerouted through Amsterdam really simple straight through the airport get to Trondheim and I'm staying overnight I've booked a hotel at the airport hotel to to because I've got a connecting flight the following day and it was sort of one of those sort of small shuttle flights get to the airport only to find that my sleeping bag hadn't arrived now the sleeping bag in in this instance was 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 going to be quite important and quite significant for the simple reason that we could have been camping out or the cabin that we were going to be staying in you need you need you need a sleeping bag with you you, you know not everything on that estate on an estate that size is is logistically simple for the estate to to kit out so they can't necessarily get bedding and linens and things like that because it's not that kind of it's not that kind of hunt or trip so I was quite annoyed and quite stressed that certain bits of kit hadn't arrived because I'd had some sort of more thermal socks in uh, with the sleeping bag and other bits like that speaking with Christopher at the estate he said don't worry about it and then and for a first time foray it was really important to go with a proper outfit and not um, outfitter they were to, he was just really quick to switch a plan, find an alternate cabin for us where he could get things to them much simpler. Um, and actually, I didn't need a sleeping bag and I could pick up other things from the shop before we went on. So problem solved. The next day I flew from Trondheim to Rorvik, which is about, about a 45 minute flight or about four hours in the four <laughs> hours drive from Trondheim. So I knew which, which one was the easiest option. I was greeted by Christopher, first time we'd met in person, and 
from that moment on, it was just sort of proper adventure because we were going, we're driving to the uh, to the estate. We needed to pick up a few things on the way and driving to the cabin. And I just got a really good vibe from him straight away that I knew this was going to be an, an epic trip. What was the terrain like? So, I mean, you land, <laughs> you land somewhere random in Norway, um, get bundled into a car. What, what are you seeing as you drive towards the estate? Well, when we when we were flying in, we flew into Trondheim. It was it was hilly. It was it was beautiful. You know, you could see some bits of farmland and beautifully beautiful huge fjords. When I got on the flight to Raw, uh, to Rovik, that was that was a total different sort of different story. I mean, the you could see a lot more hills, but we were coming in on this really really choppy flight, and it was just it was petrifying because it was this tiny little plane. Uh, going over really choppy seas and by the time we'd landed I mean you could hear people screaming as the turbulence was hitting it wasn't nice when we got in the car and we we're driving through you're just seeing these huge sort of mount, mountain areas just absolutely stunning all all sort of you know with fjords at the bottom of them and you know we were driving along the coast at some point and then we'd go inland and you'd see rivers it was such a dramatic change of scenery and it is such a stunning country, and it's as, as a result, it's why I go back. I've, you know, I've been back twice in the last sort of. I went twice last year. I'm going back certainly twice this year, and because it's just so lovely, and the people there are amazing. They've I've realised. I don't know whether it's just Christopher and Anders, the, my two friends now over there, whether it's just their dark sense of humour, but the Norwegians I find have a very very um, sarcastic sense of humour, which I I just love. It's hilarious. It was just, it, yeah, it was just a beautiful spot, and I knew full well that it was going to be a good trip. So as we were driving through, we'd get to the little town uh, where Christopher lived, and these towns are so far away from from everywhere because Norway, when you look at it on a map, is so long. It's such a long country. You know, it's ju- it's just a, all these lovely little communities, and there's just so much going on in them. And from there, we loaded up a, a, a few bits. I think we had, we had to pick up the quad bike from the estate office. And then we drove through through some more mountains. And it took us about 40 minutes to get to the the sort of the, the gravel track that would then take us into to where the cabin is, where we we're going to stay. The cabin from the main road to the cabin is a half an hour drive down a gravel track. That's how sort of remote. I think it's about 14 kilometres. Um, but obviously you have to drive slow because it's not a, it's not necessarily the, you know, most tarmac road, but then all of a sudden all phone signal goes, you've got no communication with the outside. So for many people, it's perfect for me, social media addicts, communication addicts here, it's a bit worrying. And then you just, all of a sudden you just, after sort of half an hour down this track, you just open up into this sort of valley with the most stunning and so cool cabins and that was where we were staying for the sort of for the duration of the trip oh wow that, that it just sounds amazing it sounds like something out of a, a a fairy tale how I mean in terms of cabins I guess most people will imagine a cabin and think of something probably you know wooden logs Ernest Hemingway American style cabins what what stuck with you about the way that the Norwegian ones were designed? It, it was exactly like that. That was the pleasant surprise because I, because I was expecting something a little bit more 
more, I'd say modern, uh, but I wasn't expecting the cliche cabin. And I was hoping for a cliche cabin, but I wasn't expecting it. And it was just, it was just awesome. It had all the sort of the mossed roof for, for sort of the insulation. Um, it had the, the classic sort of decking. You're expecting to see somebody there on a rocking, uh, rocking chair outside smoking and, you know, just very, very quaint. And it had the big wood store next to it for the logs. And then it had, I realised it's very Scandinavian. It had another sort of um, smaller cabin, a hut, which was a uh, the toilet and the shower. But it also had a, a sauna, well, a steam room in there as well, like, like a sauna, which um, I haven't used yet, but I, I, I'll do it this time when I come go, go back. How was it, it all was powered? Uh, was it someone in there putting kind of logs on the fire for you or? Well, it was. So w- when we got there, um, Anders is a friend of Christopher, who is now also a, a really good friend of mine. And he was there helping out. And because I was there in the capacity of a, of, of a, of a client, the pair of them sort of were there working around the, the site and helping, helping me out and looking after me. But it has it does have solar panels on there. It has I think they have a they have a generator in the um, in one of the huts. But it's it's really well self contained. And what I've learned uh, about the cabins, particularly on that estate, and I think it's quite common across Norway, is they're really well established. They've got great pro- uh, provisions. They really do know how to make a proper cabin in the woods. And you know we had we had electricity in there. We had a lovely fire. We had um hot water with the showers which was a real luxury um (laughs) particularly how remote we actually were the actual main cabin had a really really nice kitchen area dining area some sofas the bedrooms were fantastic norwegian bunk beds are so comfy (laughs) i've experienced two different sets now so it's it's quite consistent across the board but they're so comfortable it was just the perfect most idyllic setting and start to what would essentially be probably the most grueling hunting experience I've had to to date. (laughs) So how did they prepare you for what lay ahead? Um, You know, you get there, you've got this picturesque cabin, which is everything you could have imagined it would be. Um, What, what are they feeding you? Is it, is it fish? Is it meat? The boys have now tell me they plan this in advance and um, when I got there, they, the nice thing about about the set the setup that they'd arranged was that we had such a really a, a really good they'd done a really good shop and they'd got plenty of food in, plenty to eat and drink and it was it it was just perfect. I sit down on the first sort of evening because we we weren't hunting the first day and Chris calls me over to the the table and there's this sliced ham. It looks lovely and it's got some sort of cream, creme fraiche or cream cheese. I think it was creme fraiche next to it and like little sort of flat, almost like a flatbread type thing, but little tiny pieces of it. So that both Chris and Anders are eating this and talking. We're having a, having a, a gin and tonic or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And I'm eating and I'm going, this, this, this taste, it's nice. It definitely ain't ham. <laughs> and the pair of them are laughing and I'm saying what's this and they go it's moose tongue but they keep such a straight straight face and I'm thinking right I'm not going to be rude because I've only just met these guys I'll eat it and I'm thinking but I've never eaten anything like this before lo and behold 
two or three gin and tonics in, I'm I'm still munching on moose tongue. It was it was really really nice, and I don't know whether or not that's just because I'd had a little bit too much to drink and I was knackered, or uh, it was it, look you know it it was it was very nice. And when in Rome, as they say, or when in Norway, so that was the the starter. And from then, we just had really nice hearty food because the guys the guys knew what was going to be ahead and they wanted to sort of keep me keep me up but keep our energy levels up and and prepare me for what was to come so there was plenty of good food sort of stews and we ended up having moose steaks and there was quite a variety but it was it was really really nice what's um I, i'm really intrigued as to what the hell they're going to do to you the next day but um firstly what what does a moose steak taste like i mean c- could you be eating beef or is there a distinct difference and what is that it's it, it sort of has this i would say it has a similar texture to beef but it, it it doesn't taste quite like beef but it's absolutely delicious it's very very lean but it was i wouldn't i wouldn't say you'd have a huge amount of it on a plate but it was so so it was i don't know if the right saying is clean eating it was really really easy to eat it was as i say the same texture as steak but it had a slight gamey tone to it, but it was absolutely delicious. And you have that with sort of sort of veg and potato, things like that. It was absolutely perfect. So now you're all sustained for what's yeah. to come. Um, you mentioned that, you know, you're using the state rifle um, for this trip. So um, the next day, how do you get to grip? I mean, do you get to choose your own or how do you get to grips with it and zero it? Um, what what happened the next day well christopher bought the estate rifle i can't quite remember what it was um i think i think off the top of my head it was a 306 which i'm used to shooting anyway it was important we we obviously go and zero the rifle and i think the reality of it is is zeroing yes is to check to check the the rifle is is firing in the right direction and doing what it should be doing but also for them to see that I'm capable and they're comfortable with me taking the shot because at the end of the day, they don't know me. I admittedly said to them, I'm new to this. I've, sh- I've shot deer, but I've not shot anything as, as big as a moose before. If I, if one was to be injured, they need to, they need to be able to either take that rifle quickly from me or be able to ensure that a safe second shot can be followed, followed up to ensure that that animal is, is, is quickly and humanely dispatched because they're there whilst whilst I'm there for the experience and to hunt moose and to see a different culture in hunting they're also there to take part of their quota and and I've learned this over sort of two years going back and you know going hunting now this will be like this year will be my third trip hunting um, with the guys and every time I go there you learn the importance of what they've actually got to do you know they're, they're not there to just shoot anything like there's a deer management plan over here there's a very strict management plan on moose in norway so the whole thing of me zeroing and and working out how capable i am is you know is probably is a significant part of 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 getting me ready basically at any stage did you question yourself so you said that it's you know a moose is a significantly larger animal than a deer was there any stage that you felt a touch of self-doubt i think if i said no then i'd be lying you always you you always have a sort of well i I personally always have a right okay what if and i think if you don't have a what if 
you 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 know and you you go there with the intention this is absolutely going to happen if something doesn't go to plan then you're not ready in your head to address the situation if as and when it changes now that i'm t- i'm talking that from a perspective of as as a novice you know what would i do in that perspective of even as a novice i want to know you know how i'd react do i uh, dilly dally or if if something goes wrong I need to give that rifle as quickly as possible to Chris for him to him to rectify it. If I'm not comfortable, you know, my emotions and my my well being is is of no concern at that point. The animal well being is the most important part for me. So that's the only time I had a doubt is will I know what to do if something goes wrong? But I think if you go in with the attitude of having having a be confident, but also be confident of knowing what to do if something doesn't go right it doesn't go right and if it's as simple as passing the rifle to somebody more experienced then so be it you know the animal as i say is the most important part but other than that i felt very confident with the rifle we'd zeroed we got a good grouping on the shots also taking into consideration that the target that we're aiming on a moose is larger than it would be on a deer so you know, all these are sort of psychological things that, you, that I'm taking into consideration. So going out there the fo- on the first morning, having zeroed and got kitted out, I, you know, I, I had good confidence. And with the ranges that you were zeroing at, what um, what distances were those? We zeroed, I think at the top of my head, it was about 100, 100 yards and 150 yards. We don't want to be taking silly distance longer longer shots than that um you know we could go up to 200 and that was that was the bounds of which i i was comfortable with and also that was the bounds in which christopher was comfortable with, with me taking so you go on the advice of, of of the guide there are people out there who will take longer shots and that's their prerogative they're more confident you know it's it's an individual situation but i that's what we zeroed um zeroed in at and you know, we had an understanding of what what to do. So, on the rifle that you used from the estate, what um, scope did you have mounted on it? Again, the estate rifle. I think it was actually a, um, another loophole scope. That's why I'm with with my setup now that I've got with um, Angela Merkel. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, I'm, I knew the kit. But that's why I've gone for the for, for loophole on that. Um, just just coincidence. Yeah, it was just sort of very much a, a case of deal with the estate rifle there so I, I didn't you don't have much to say so now you've got the confidence you've got the kit do they give you a briefing about what to expect over the next few days or is it just okay pack your stuff we could be out for a while uh, again down to uh, Christopher and Anders sense of humor it was very much of we're going up that hill and that hill wasn't a hill it was a mountain it it was steep and I still have nightmares to this day about going up. Even when I, when I was back there in September, I said, please tell me we're not going up Heart Attack Hill. It was horrible. It, it was one of those ones where I think it, took, I think it took, took about an hour to get up. The lads can do it in about 15 or 20 minutes. You know, but you know, but they're like they're like deer themselves. They can just they can, they can pop up and down these hills, whereas I'm sort of lugging <laughs> a big gut about. <laughs> so we so the first morning we got ready we we got kitted up and we went out over we actually we took a different route in the first day uh, and to look at a set of valley that christopher wanted us to have a look at 
I mean, the first sort of half an hour, I knew that I was going to be up, up against it. It was going to be really tricky. The, the ground, it was very, very much like Scotland in that it was when when I was in Kyrgyzstan, it was hard, rocky ground. You could get, you could, you, you know, you could push against it. You could put some resistance. But here, it was mossy. It was soggy. It was slippy. So your energy would just drain from your legs a lot quicker, and you'd be sinking and you'd be really fighting against it so you'd be really putting a putting a shift in to get up these hills when we got up to the top of the first valley it was nice to just sit there and you just all of a sudden this huge vista opens up and you are in the most spectacular valley looking at mountains we're high up at the already but the, the mountains across uh, the lake in front of us were just another level it was it was like it was the best way to describe it, it was like something out of lord of the rings just this very interesting mixture of uh, topography and ground and I, I was just there taking photos all the time i absolutely loved it and we spent about 40 minutes to an hour just glassing and looking on, on, on the far but on the far bank for moose and i'd never seen any at this point um and having Christopher try to explain it to me was was amazing. And we just spent, I think, as I say, 45 minutes to an hour just looking and trying to find what would essentially be a tiny needle in a haystack because then you realise how big this valley is that we're actually in. We eventually find, find a couple uh, of small groups, like a, a bull, a, a cow and a calf, or a, ca a cow and a calf. And, um, and it's then just a case of working out which one we're going to go for, which one Christopher wants to take uh, for his quota. And also, it's not just a case with there of, okay, we'll go and shoot that one. Because at that point, you've got to also realise and, 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 and take into consideration the logistics of getting it back. Whereas, which is something I've never experienced before. When you when you deer stalking in Scotland, you can either get an Arga cat to it, or you can you can drag it nine times out of ten. Here, that was not absolutely not not possible. It was absolutely inaccessible. So, what was the plan when you shot a moose? Well, the the plan was hopefully shoot one close enough that we can that we can we can get it back, drag it back. We actually went. We we took a, a detour on the first day and. Well, he wanted to have a look at an, another part where he knew which was good for uh, another part of the estate he knew was good for moose so through the valley that we'd come come into and it took us from this sort of hill hilly moorland type escarpment um into more forestry area the weather picked up it was beautiful and and sunny and again just this sort of sheer contrast of, of topography and, and and weather uh and we got to this this far bank, didn't see anything there, and then I and then it was at that point we were absolutely exhausted because we'd walked and walked and walked. We'd probably been out four or five hours immediately of walking straight straight from the cabin. So we decided to have lunch, and that's where I discovered the Norwegians' love of rocket fuel or coffee, <laughs> uh, and their their fantastic ability to build fires. So we sat in this really picturesque little little woodland and christopher made a, a huge <laughs> i thought it was gonna start a forest fire a huge uh, campfire and he set the kettle up the little sort of over over the fire kettle and we had coffee i pretended i really enjoyed it it was just 
<laughs> I, I was I was wired after it, absolutely wired. I could have walked for another three days after that coffee. And we actually had lunch there, and I can't remember the name of the food, but they were like little ration packs. But they were they were a branded ration pack. But they 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 came with, with all different types of uh, meals in them, so beef stew or a hot pot or things like that and they were absolutely delicious but they were full of calories which obviously really helped and we just we just end up sitting there and for a, an hour two hours just chatting away and it was just it became then not about finding moose but just finding our feet taking it at an easy pace and realizing we've got three or four days to go we'll find a moose if you, at some point but just enjoy it for what it was and it, it was incredible to see all sorts of different wildlife. We, we, we saw quite a lot of black game there, so uh, black cock, and we didn't see any cabocaly, but they have got them on that estate, and a few hazel grouse and, and, and willow grouse. So it became a really nice sort of the start of a bonding exercise between Christopher and I. When you were out um, around that campfire, was the plan to kind of go back every night to the cabins or was it to stay out on the hills? We sort of discussed it before we before I'd come out, out, to, Nor- out to, Nor- to Norway. But actually we were, whilst we'd walked a long way, it was easier to just get back to the cabin every night, get changed, you know, reassess. And also with it being the cabin in the middle uh, of the site, we could, we could, we could change plan at, at a moment's notice. If we were in the valley, and nothing was really happening it would it would be a bit more of an effort to sort of rejig everything so we ended up going back to the cabin every night in preparation for the amount of walking and climbing that you had to do did you do any training or exercise beforehand or did you just kind of work off this immense coffee and adrenaline rush <laughs> well it was it was partly the latter but no i mean i'm lucky because i live I live in the Peak District, so we've got some really good good walks, and the dog the dog obviously needs to get needs to get out quite a bit. So I spent quite a bit of time walking up uh, in the Scout and through the Peak District there. But it was nothing really that I could could plan for because I hadn't been then. The second time round, I knew what I knew more what to expect and and could train a little bit more for it. But I don't think it's something that the step machine in the gym could really prepare you for. And, and particularly the following days, you, you know, once you've had a few gin and tonics and a few wines and, and uh, the famous Aquavit, which is, <laughs> which is the spirit that we that we got quite uh, merry on one night. Um, yeah, nothing, nothing in the gym can really quite prepare you for for that um, baptism, baptism fire. What did you wear on your feet? Because you mentioned earlier that the terrain was very different to that of Kyrgyzstan. It was probably very different to the Peak Districts. Um, did you have boots or did you have kind of longer welly type boots? I'm not sure what the right term is for those. But Personally, I've always, I've always worn boots. I always wear, and I absolutely swear by my Brandicost boots. I've had Brandicost boots for probably five, six years now, maybe even a bit longer. And I've actually got about five pairs of them through the, the different range. And they're absolutely phenomenal boots. A lot, of, a lot of my friends wear them. They're super comfortable, extremely durable. But the interesting thing with them 
that we discovered that well that the guys discovered was I ended up having a brand new pair. I ordered a brand new pair of boots and the guy sent it through to me. And I didn't want, I was really protective over them. I didn't want to get them scuffed or anything. I wanted them to look immaculate. So I didn't, I didn't break them in. <laughs> and I got them to the cabin, pulled them out. And the guys are like, they're immaculate, those boots. I'm like, I've not even worn them. I put them on. And they, they were like, you are, you are going to, you're going to regret that. You should have broken them in. I put them on. The boots were flawless. So comfortable. And I, I was a bit nervous, to be honest, because I've had boots, you know, in the, in the, in the past where they haven't, they haven't supported you properly or when you, when you, until you've broken them in, they give you, they rub on you or things like that. But these are awesome. I won't wear anything else. That's amazing. I was expecting you to say your feet were covered in zinc oxide tape and blisters. After. No, there was no. There were, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, after the amount of walking that we did, anyone's feet are going to ache after that. But those boots are world class, absolutely world class. And I've had them. I've worn them in Kyrgyzstan. I've worn them in Norway. I've had them in Scotland. They're going to come with me to Greenland in March. They are the best. I think that's a really good tip and um, especially for people who are listening and you know save their boots for best um, you've got to be careful that the boots that you save for best are uh, <laughs> going to yeah. stand the test. Yeah of- yeah yeah it, it was a foolish <laughs> error on my on, on my part but confidence in the kit I knew, I, I knew that I knew those boots would be absolutely fine uh, <laughs> I think the lads actually want a pair now so I'll, 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 I'm probably gonna have to get them get them a pair. <laughs> So the next day when you um, headed out again, because I guess you're only there for three or four days, did you feel any pressure, you know, today that like almost like the time's counting down that you you need to find your moose, basically? A hundred percent. The first, bearing in mind, this is the first sort of real big trip that I've ever done. You do feel the urge to have that sense of completion about you. And this, this I'm, I'm, realizing now isn't the be all and end all it's not it, it it's not that it's not a hunting trip if you're not successful and actually the first time we went there I was like I've got to I've got to complete this I've got to do it but I've got to have something to, to 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 prove for at the end of it and that's that's the wrong attitude to have with it I'm pleased to say I've, I've reassessed that now but it's 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 the sort of the the newbie the naivety and everybody gets that so I did have this sort of, uh, I, my God, I hope, I hope we find one. I hope we find one. And I knew Christopher wanted to find one for, for me and Anders did as well. So they put, the, they put a huge amount of effort in. But, you know, taking into consideration, these are wild animals. You know, you can't, they're not in a pen. You've got to work for it. On the, what is essentially, the, I think it was the third day, we'd gone into Up Heart Attack Hill which I was just, I, I really literally wanted to cry every time they said that we were going to go up there because I think I think by the end of the trip, we did it one, two, we did it four times. And, it, and as I say, it's steep, it's boggy in parts, so you're really, and, and you're carrying a big weight on your back. So we go up Hardstack Hill, we go out, we start glassing, and I think at this point, Anders spots a moose in the in, in the distance. And we're talking, I think, about four four K out from where we were at this point. And the moose was up against the, the mountainside, sort of resting up. 
So we devised a plan. We ended up having lunch. We had a, a, a huge, I thought Christopher made big fires, but Anders, I ended up getting a photograph of it. It, it, it just like, it was just, it was like a bonfire. It was huge. You know, and he goes and cuts down a tree and it's all that for meatballs. And we're there with um, meatballs on sticks, on, on skewers fashioned from sticks. It was ace, you know, real sort of Boy Scout type thing. Uh, more rocket fuel coffee. And we just sat there chatting and talking and, and then devising a plan on how we were going to approach hunting this particular moose. We set off in the early afternoon up and around rather than going obviously straight at it, checking that, you know, we check the wind, we ended up having to come around the back of the mountain over the top, which took us about two hours, three hours to get to, to do. I'm dripping in sweat at this point, not wanting to give up because there's a chance of a moose here at this point. Thankfully, the water in the rivers and the little streams coming down is the freshest water I've ever drank. It's just Un, unreal so we just had a little bottle and we could just keep swigging so we were plenty you know we we're plenty hydrated but it was this sort of drive to we've got to complete this we've got to complete it christopher's got a, a radio and he's radioing to anders who's way back at where at the lunch camp glassing and spotting for us and sort of giving us some some assistance and we're stalking around the back and it's at this point we're, we're we're well and truly exposed on the top of this mountain. I dump my bag and we 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 sort of scuttle across to, to roughly where where this moose was, and we get into position and it becomes a waiting game. We lay there, we're shuffling down, we're crawling. It's it's hard on 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 the kit because it's all all sort of granite rock that's been exposed, you know, wind exposure things like that. So it's scratching and we get to a ledge and we just lie there, we set the rifle up and we're waiting. And, and we've got an idea where this moose is going to come out. Now we know it's, it's a sort of a calf, sort of a year, a, a year, year or a yearling calf or two years old, something like that. It was, it is what they needed to take off the hill. So we're waiting to see roughly where she's going to come out, but we've got an idea. We can only hear little bits from, from the radio so the full communication isn't coming through. So we'll lay here and Christopher sort of, at, at this point, I understand this sense of humour and he's sort of just, sort of, you know, quietly winding me up and getting me all sort of excited for, you know, for, for what's, what's about to happen. Even he didn't know what was about to happen because I'm lay there and you're looking through this scope and you sort of, your eyes going a bit funny, so you try and shake it off. And I'm lay there thinking... And then I clock something in the corner of my eye, move. And I'm just thinking, holy shit. What had happened was this moose had come up on a false ledge, taken a completely different route to where we anticipated her coming from and come up to a point. And I'm kicking in and I can see her and I'm looking at her. We real, we reckon that she was 20 metres from us, maybe even probably. And that's at a push, maybe even maybe even closer. And at this point, I'm, I'm there. She moves out a little bit. It's just bizarre. And I've got the, I've got the rifle ready because she's come up and she, uh, where she is, I can see where she's come up. The, uh, the, sc the, the scope is actually on the perfect, perfect place. So we couldn't move back. It would, it would, it would uh, disturb her. We couldn't go anywhere. We could, if she moved on, we're not going to get a shot that's safe. 
this was literally the safest shot. So Christopher gives me the, you know, the uh, the nudge. I shoot at sort of, by this point, she's about 20, 30 metres away, but not clocked where we are. And all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. She turns and runs. And at this point, going back to the point, what do we do if if it goes wrong? If it goes, if it goes wrong, I, I immediately gave Christopher the rifle and he took um, two shots. He missed with the first and and connected with the second. But she tears off down this um, hill, this very rocky sort of escarpment and, and drops. And my heart is pounding at this point because it's something that I wasn't expecting. And it's a pr- prime example of something could happen that you're not, you're not anticipating. I'm sort of shaking at this moment. Christopher knows she's down, everything's good. Uh, because I, where he, t- you know, where, where he told me to shoot, I shot, I listened. And that's the most important thing. Listen to what you're, to- you're being told. Um, and he, you know, we, he congratulates me. You know, we're, it's quite emotional because we're, we're knackered at this point. We get down and as takes about an hour or so to get to us because from where he is and we all convene at the moose. Thankfully, by the, we're, we're, by the time we come to preparing her and grallicking her and, and dressing her, field dressing her, my shot actually killed her. She was just running on on adrenaline and steam. You know, the shot was absolutely fine, even though it was close, and which was really reassuring for me to know. Um, Christopher said, I just put the, the two insurance shots there for the reason that, you know, it's the ethical, it's the right thing to do. You know, many people wouldn't take a shot at that close. I'm, I'm happy I did it. I felt confident with it. You know, it's it's one of those things. And, and I, I was listening off sound advice from somebody who knows what they're doing. And um, it came good. Then we start to prepare her. And she is, I say she's, I look at, look at this this uh, female calf that we look, and it's like a, it's like a cow. It's huge. And I've never seen anything so large in my life. I mean, <laughs> the legs are like something out of a cartoon where you see like dinosaur bones. They're, they're just very gangly things and absolutely massive. And so begins the, the, the preparation of her. When you talk about the quota that they need to take, how did your team of guides decide on that one? How do they know which ones to take out and which ones to leave? My understanding of that situation in Norway is very much down to the local local area. And I think it's also governed quite heavily by the local authorities. So there's a lot of communication between estate owners, um, mutual estates and, 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 and hunting communities. And the quotas are issued, I think, by the, by the government. And I think that is down to down to the size of the acreage of, of, of a piece of ground. I mean, I, I stand, I, you know, I'll stand corrected if I'm, if I'm not hundred percent with that, but there are certain things that they've got to shoot a percentage, a percentage of every, of, of every category. So a percentage of big bulls, a percentage of, uh, of, of uh, cows and a percentage of calves. You know, I don't want to go into the sort of science of it on a, you know, too much in case I get it totally wrong but what I'm what I was able to appreciate from there is is that actually this is a really well organized well well constructed management plan that clearly is doing a huge amount of good there's obviously a lot of moose on that estate because they can shoot a large number of moose over the course of the season but equally 
there's also heavy ramifications and, re- and, and, and penalties in the event that somebody does something wrong, which I think is also shows the, the respect that the Norwegians have for, 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 their, for their game. You know, if somebody does something wrong or it's not, not quite right, you know, yes, it's tough, but it's, the rules are there for a reason and, every, and it, seems, it, seems to, it seems to work. What happens to, or what happened to the meat from that calf? You, you mentioned kind of gralicking in the field. How does it get transported back and what's it used for or how is it used? How does it get transported back? Um, on my back, on Christopher's back and on Anders' back, um, we, you can't get Argo cats to where, where, where we were. We were probably three or four hours away from camp. So what we did was we prepared the moose, gralicked her, um, dragged her to a, an opening where we where we where it was much easier to get to. They piled a lot of sticks on there and sort of and twigs and bushes to stop the birds from getting at it, and put a bit of a sort of orange cord there that flapped around again to stop the birds from getting there. We hiked back. This is why I was saying we did that route four times up Hard Tank Hill got back to the cabin, had lunch. And then the following morning, we had to go and extract her. So we got there, again, another hike up. This time it was a lot quicker because we were going straight direct. We weren't stalking. We weren't cautious of disturbing anything. Uh, we butchered, skinned, and and broke her up into, into more manageable chunks. And the the lads had their huge rucksacks. In total, she was about, I think, I think she was about 130 kilos, which is small for a moose, but for me, that was just colossal. So the lads had about 50 kilos each on their back. They were just machines <laughs> and uh, all, all sort of piled, piled up. And then I had about 30 kilos on mine. The skin alone, because I wanted to take the skin back and, and have it tanned as a sort of, you know, it's a sort of memento, and we rolled that up, and that is in, in, in immensely heavy in itself. You know, we rolled that up and put it on my back, and we, there's actually a drone footage somewhere of of the three of us stood, and the drones panning around. And I love the drone footage because it's really sort of it, it is just a cool shot. And then you notice on the back that the skin had dropped a little bit. <laughs> right in between my legs and it just looked like a, a very dangly pair or something it was just, it's just completely ruined <laughs> the, the whole shot yeah um, so so i can't watch that anymore without laughing but then we 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 carried everything back and it was amazing how little is left and the fascinating thing both anders and Christo, christopher are in, incredibly intelligent guys they clearly they're only young they're only sort of my age, sort of 30, 30s. They'll probably kill me if they're even probably younger than that. But they really, really know their stuff. And I was asking them to explain to me how they know how old the, the you know this this calf is. Um, and they were able to sort of break down the jaw, show me the teeth, the new teeth coming through, how many sets of teeth that it had. Everything about it was absolutely fascinating. And it just showed that these aren't guys that are just there to pull the trigger, they're there to because they love what they do, they know a hell of a lot about it, and they know the benefit of what they're doing. And it was, it, again, it was that learning that, that I, that made the whole experience, that rounded the whole experience off, plus the brilliant, 
you know, they're just great friends. They've become really, really good friends. With the um, moose skin, what was the process of getting that out of Norway? Uh, did you have to get it tanned in Norway and then exported? Unfortunately, the skin never, never, we, we never managed to get it through because by the time that we'd got back and a few days had passed, we'd missed the opportunity. So this, the, the tanning process couldn't be done. So it, uh, the skin, the hair started to fall out. So it, just, it, it, it unfortunately couldn't be used. Uh, we're going to try. We'll try and get it again, but it's it, it needed to be done a lot quicker. Getting things back, I think, is from Norway to the UK. I think it's going to be quite tricky, and I think it's going to be increasingly more difficult with, with new proposed legislation uh, for importing and exporting uh, what they what the government perceive as trophies uh, from from certain certain countries. Anyway, um, so that can't really answer because I don't know at this moment in time, but I th- I'm not envisaging it being the easiest, unfortunately. You mentioned before that this whole trip was designed to mark your birthday. Was it on your birthday that you took the moose? No, I took the moose on the 5th, I think, the day out, 5th of October. And then the 6th of October, we extracted it. I think I was there for four or five days in total, but the whole trip was around the 30th. So I mean, most people ex- most people make their birthday the last three or four days this day, so it's still classes. I'm still classing it as my thirtieth um, birthday present, and it was it was epic. I wouldn't have it any other way. The only thing we didn't get to see, which I, I still haven't seen, on the three trips I've done, is the Northern Lights. I was really hoping that we'd, we'd get to see them, but we did just get the the most spectacular, crystal clear nights, and you could just see the. You know, everything like the Milky Way and the star, it was just absolutely stunning. So it, it, it was really, really a cool trip. If somebody else wants to replicate the same moose hunts, who are the outfitters that you, you, that you used and how much should they expect to spend on a four or five day trip? The, the outfits I use are called Plathis Estate, and I think it's spelled P-L-A, uh, P-L-A-H or P-L-A-T-H-E-S Estates uh, in Norway. Uh, or those people get people to message me and I'll introduce them to the guys there. Um, it's the, the pricing. I'm, wait, I'm, I'm waiting on this year, this year's pricing now, but it's I'd set a few a few thousand pound aside, for, you know, for the trip. And it all depends on. You know, if you're going to go for a bull moose, you know, they will offer these these trips of if people want to shoot a bull moose or they want to do a, you know, a cull animal, you know, those those packages are open. So it's something to talk to the estate. But a couple of thousand pounds, three thousand pounds, you know, would be a good good starting point and then take it from there. But it just depends uh, on what else you want to do as well. There's there's the option of, um, you know, the, the, the wing shooting out there. We're, this year I went back, well, I went back in 2022 and this trip, you know, we went, I went back as, as friends, you know, it was, it, I, I got, I got roped in, I got stuck in a lot more this time. The, the lads were relentless on their banter with me, which, you know, I, I, I absolutely love them for. And I ended up, I ended up shooting hazel graphs last year, which was, which was just really, really interesting and something completely different yeah this this year this year i'm going to back we're going we're going to go to a different part of the estate and hopefully try for a moose again because in 22 when i went went back i went there 
early November this year, so a bit later, we actually tried. We didn't go on a mountain hunt. We went. Uh, we went uh, more traditional. We went sh- um, to shoot a moose over Bain Dog. Christopher and Anders both have uh, Nor- Norwegian. I think they're called Norwegian elk hounds or moose hounds. They're the, the most awesome looking dogs and they're so lovely. And their job is to track the moose, find the moose and hold the moose at bay until you get up to the moose and you can spot spot it, shoot it. And it's it's another way of hunting. And that, was, again, was part of the journey that I'm having with, with these guys in Norway about learning about different techniques and things like that. This work this year, last year wasn't successful in the sense that we didn't shoot a moose, but it was just so much more of a, a, an experience and a learning curve. Um, everything from shooting hazel grouse to seeing different parts of the estate, all the way to drinking cosk, uh, um, <laughs> which is a new uh, homebrew. So hunting and homebrew, as we said in the last one, uh, where it was this year became cosk, which is black coffee and the first time we did it was really strong black coffee and vodka which was okay um and then the second night because we had to come out of the valley which which was the driveway sort of half an hour down the track um chris popped into his friends who makes his own spirit and we tried cosk that way and that's the traditional way and that was 86 percent it's good you've still got your eyesight oh it was nuts it was absolutely nuts I slept like a log that night it was it was just hellish you you put a little tiny bit in and you put a match to it and it just it it was it was like petrol wow so I think we need to um potentially share the recipe for cosk in uh the link to this podcast if anyone's interested or or, or (laughs) find it I don't I have to double check whether it'd be legal in this country at that percentage it's like it was like absinthe and coffee. It was it was just nuts, but really strong absinthe. And I think sometimes they even go into the ninety in the into the ninety percent. Wow! I mean, you're going to have dreams about moose chasing you with with that kind of. Absinthe. I think I think I did. To be, I think I did. To be honest, I was hallucinating moose. Gosh. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Intrepid Hunter. Where are we going next episode? Next episode, we're going to go to Eastern Germany and we're going to be hunting Mufon. Fabulous. I can't wait. And for any listeners, you can find out more about the kit that Nathan uses and you can follow his journey by subscribing to this podcast, by following uh, Viking Arms Limited on YouTube or by having a look at the latest news on vikingshoot.com. Thank you for listening.